Well, we are about to uh, encounter the word of the Lord. Now, mind you, this is a very powerful moment. It says that in the beginning that all things were created through the word of God. And so here this morning, God can still do powerful things through his word, including transform our hearts here this morning. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited and I'm ready to, in a sense, sit back and watch what God does here. Um, we're continuing the study in the life of Joseph. Uh, last week we saw Joseph rise to power and, you know, God's timing by God's sovereign hand through the Lord allowing Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And Joseph is now established as a ruler, as a governor in Egypt. And the time of famine, as foretold in Pharaoh's dreams, has come. And today we're moving on in Genesis chapter 42. And what we see is kind of this, uh, this meeting between Joseph's brothers and him. And Joseph's brothers, uh, this is the first time that they've really encountered Joseph since they sold him into slavery so many years ago. And as we're going about this study in chapter 42, we must keep in mind that the major theme of this study, it's right there on the slide, is the sovereignty of God. That his will always comes about by his powerful workings and rule. However, today we're going to see a, a sort of interesting facet, a different nuance uh, come out in our passage. Now, generally speaking, when we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about ultimate power, control over all things in the ability to bring about the will of the Lord. Power so strong that it necessitates that things play out in a special, particular way according to God's will. It is an unstoppable power. And I think we kind of are starting to get a grasp on that. However, there's this other angle to it, that any being that it's sort of implied that any being with such a power who is the arbiter of justice is indeed a being who is to be greatly feared. God's concern in this chapter we're going to see seems to be striking the recognition and the fear of who he is into the hearts of Joseph's brothers. Now, fear is the practical working out and true understanding of, of these things, of, of God's sovereignty, of God's justice, and of our own sin. And it's watching these things play out personally, realizing that God's sovereignty isn't just, oh, for, for other people or other things, that it plays out over you, and that he is very concerned with justice. This is the nuance, this is the feature brought out by the text this morning, we're going to see that God is revealed as the sovereign Lord who should be feared. See, if you have a true fear of the Lord, then you will be recognizing his sovereignty and his justice at play in your life. And if you have a true understanding of sovereignty and justice over, over your life, personally, then you will be fearing the Lord. And if there's no measure of fear, then frankly, there's no measure of worshipful understanding of God in any practical sense. Remember, even, even Proverbs, right, closely ties the fear of the Lord to understanding him, really. To really knowing who he is. Those two concepts, fear and worshipful understanding, in fact, by some have been said to be sort of synonymous. And this chapter represents an awakening of the conscience of Joseph's brothers. 
a realization regarding all of this, regarding their sin, regarding God's sovereignty, and regarding the fact that God is judge. And how God has been interacting with them. And they're going to realize all of this as the Lord reveals it to them. And it's my prayer this morning that we leave here also with a fear of the Lord in our hearts, which symbolizes a true and proper understanding of reality, of the situation at hand. We are to be God-fearing people. We are to be recognizing who God is. And I'm sort of spending maybe a bit longer on this, uh, this before we get into the reading, and I think that's because there's a lot of misconceptions about the fear of the Lord. Uh, before some are offended by the seeming archaic language, God-fearing and fearing the Lord, let it be known that even the most loving and gentle relationships, for example, a parent and a child, there is fear and obedience that are crucial components. Oh, some, some of you know very well that you should be afraid of mom, shouldn't you? Right? You should be afraid of dad. And that's normal, and that's healthy. And in fact, in its proper context, in proper light, it actually makes the relationship even more loving. The hierarchical structure set by God is a wonderful, loving act. And recognizing it actually amplifies the love of the Lord. Gives a true holistic picture Right? We have to view things correctly. If a nuke is about to go off, perhaps we should be a little afraid. Fear is viewing something in the appropriate weight where it actually affects our actions. Now, sometimes, obviously, we fear the wrong thing. However, other times, and perhaps more so the case, we don't fear the thing we ought. We sin, we go about our business as if God were inferior to us. And as if God lacked power, justice, and sovereignty. But we are to fear God, who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. He is the great judge. But we often downplay this aspect of God, and this is sort of what Joseph's brothers did. They had a great reminder that the Lord is to be recognized in their lives and to be feared. So we would be amiss to talk about the sovereignty of God and avoid this concept of it being conjoined with the just nature of God producing appropriate fear of the Lord in our lives as he is recognized. If this is not understood, this is important, right? If this is not understood, do we really understand the first part of the gospel the way we should? Do we understand the, the bad news of our sin and the fact that he's a just God? If there is no practical acknowledgement of him as bigger than you, as able to judge you, as able to thwart your will with his own sovereign will, do we have a correct view of God? Or are we nominally talking about God's sovereignty because it's kind of the cool thing to do sometimes? Or is there a genuine fear, a genuine recognition of how this plays out practically in our lives? Do we understand that he is both perfectly just, perfectly sovereign, and personally interacting with us in our lives according to his knowledge? So, so when I say fear of the Lord, this is what I mean. That the Lord is to be recognized for who he is in a practical way. That he is sovereign and just and acting, us acting in accordance with that knowledge. So now, with that sort of 
understanding. Let's approach Genesis 42, read the passage, and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Uh, If you're able, please stand um, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read chapter 42 together. So here's what it says uh, in, in the word of the Lord, starting at verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph uh, had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may go and get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw... The distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Uh, Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them, he spoke to them. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, 
my money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of his country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take the grain for your famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies. But honest men, I, I, will, give you, I, I will give your brothers to you, and you may trade in the land. <clears throat> now it came about, as they were emptying their sacks, that, behold, every man's bundle was in the sack, and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All of these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put two sons to death if, you do not, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on this journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Let's read these verses together. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows... This he will also reap, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. For you have tried us, O God, have, you have refined us as silver is refined. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Now for a little while you have been distressed by various trials, so that the refining of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even through tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can be seated. Um, that was a lot of reading. Good, good standing. Good job, guys. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, let's, let's pray before we dive into this. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. Um, and Lord, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would illuminate this truth in the hearts of your saints. And those who don't know you would come to know you by your powerful working. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we said that the main point here is about recognizing and fearing the Lord appropriately. Now, where exactly do we see God causing Joseph's brothers 
to fear him and to recognize him come out in our text. How do we know that this here is the point? Well, as maybe mentioned in the past, our point, our main points, can often be stated by characters in the narrative. And we see the key verse here that tips us off to the point of the passage is verse 28. This is the key verse. The brothers are talking amongst themselves, and they can no longer deny that this is the Lord's work and the Lord's doing. Uh, That all of these terrifying events that took place uh, was God's hand. And here's what the word of the Lord says. It says, their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? At this point, they are recognizing what we talked about earlier, the sovereignty of God with his justice practically playing out in their lives in a real way, and it causes within them trembling. This is exactly what God wanted. And this realization, this recognition of God, this fear of God comes about in the life of the lives of Joseph's brothers in various ways in this passage. And so what we will do is analyze this chapter in terms of the sovereign actions of God which caused the instillment of appropriate fear and recognition into Joseph's brothers. In other words, here is how God causes us to appropriately appropriately recognize him. If we kind of, you know, forget about God a little bit, we ignore God, we're going about our merry way, this is how God will get your attention and cause you to recognize him in the way he ought to be recognized once, uh, once again in your life. And so we see this is done in several ways in chapter 42. Uh, firstly, we see that God caused, uh, causes us to fear him by trials Secondly, we see that God causes us to fear or recognize him by making us reap what we have sown. I should say making us reaping. That shouldn't be there. It should be making us reap uh, what we have sown. And uh, lastly, we see that God uh, causes us to fear him by reminders of our sin and guilt. Now, this is kind of uh, a bit of an uncomfortable message, but it is indeed, I believe, what the Scripture teaches us. So let's look at this. Uh, that God causes us, firstly, that God causes us to fear him by trials. Now, what exactly is a trial? A trial is a hardship. It's something uncomfortable, something that at face value is, is negative. It's something that we avoid, something we do not like, usually speaking. Now, remember, all of these things, all of these negative events that had happened, or seemingly negative events that happened, were attributed to God in verse 28. This was God doing this. This was God allowing this and using this for his purposes. And so here's the trial that we see. At the very beginning, we see the trial of the famine itself and what this causes in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. Trials will force us into places that we don't want to go, usually things we're uncomfortable doing. But remember, this is exactly what God wanted. God wanted them in Egypt to address their hearts. Genesis 42, the opening of the chapter, Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? They See, they probably heard Egypt and said, we don't want to go there. That brings up some bad memories. Right? So, so they're not comfortable 
going to Egypt. Uh, he says, behold, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food from that place so that we may live and not die. But they were in a tricky situation. They had a trial that forced them to address what was going on in their hearts. Friends, God works the same way in our lives. They were out of food. Jacob, according to Jacob's estimation in verse 2, they were going to die if these brothers did not travel to that place which they did not want to go. And what is ironic is the place they did not want to go is the place God wanted them to go. Friends, I stand here and tell you all today that God is not concerned with our comfort as much as he is with addressing our spiritual growth in our hearts. When you are having trouble financially, when you are having issues in your marriage, when you are uncomfortable, that is where true spiritual growth can take place. And friends, it might be the wake-up call to cause us to recognize God once again in our lives, in those uncomfortable trials. Remember, there was a bigger plan. There's a refining quality. We read several verses about it. If you are always comfortable... Are you spiritually growing? If you are always comfortable, if you're, there's never a trial, there's never any pushback, friend, congratulations, you're completely sanctified. That's obviously being a little sarcastic there. God addresses us and grows us through these things. Sometimes the biggest grace that God can give us is a trial that makes us uncomfortable. And, and we see this play out all, all the time. Uh, trials cause us to turn back to God to an extent. Uh, sometimes nominally, but sometimes really. Uh, take, for example, 9-11. The churches that were packed following those days. Now, granted, it probably wasn't all super genuine, but at the very least, it served as a little bit of a t an attention getter, didn't it? For some reason, they were there. Some, some reason they were thinking about these deeper issues. They couldn't ignore them anymore. Trials tend to do just that. Now, God could have done things differently here in our text, right? Imagine, uh, you know, it's possible that God could have decided to bless Jacob's family miraculously, uh, to, to put a miracle on their soil, to allow their soil to grow plentiful amounts of food during this famine, and that would have been great. But if that would have happened, if they didn't receive this trial, if they weren't forced to go to Egypt, they would have never had the fear of God instilled in them the way they did here in the text, the way the story really went down. And friends, that would be a travesty. That would be unfortunate. The main point is recognition of God. And God enabled this trial, allowed this trial to happen to get them to that place. So famine comes upon Jacob's house. And you know, some of us during trials, we feel abandoned. However, it's just the opposite. This is God's way of getting our attention. Trials, uncomfortable circumstances, they're blessings from God, teaching us to recognize him, to fear him, to trust him, and to obey him. And another interesting thing about trials is they cause that which is buried deep within our heart to kind of leak out, doesn't it? You know, it brings things to the surface that need to be dealt with, things that were maybe we weren't aware with, right? Our word, we deceive ourselves all the time. Heart's very deceitful. But these things are in there, and they'll pop out during trials. We see it pop out here. They don't want to go to Egypt. They were ignoring it, but they can't anymore. And here's what we also see. We see 
it pop out in Jacob as well. Trials are revealing unchristlike character flaws within us. God uses trials because they reveal things that God wants to work on. Remember, Jacob had this problem of playing favorites, this trial of famine, this, this issue, this thing that's uncomfortable for everyone, allows this thing that God wants to work on peer its ugly head so it can be dealt with. Uh, chapter 3, uh, excuse me, chapter 42, verse 3, it says, Then the ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. But Jacob said, uh, again, verse 38, towards the end, but Jacob said, If harm should befall him on his journey, uh, on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, we know that God you know, deals with, with Jacob a little bit because in chapter 43, Jacob finally lets Benjamin go by necessity. However, the point of our chapter, what is coming out, is that trials bring to the forefront these hidden issues of our soul. Oftentimes, uh, if we did not have trials, we would delude ourselves into thinking everything is right and we wouldn't think to turn to God at all because we would have no need for him in our minds. Uh, I was just talking to friends yesterday, and this kind of, you know, came out that the things, our problems, our stresses, our trials, reveal the idols of our hearts that we don't always know are down there operating. Take, for example, uh, the trial of a financial hardship. It very well might be that God is dealing with a lack of faith in his promises in Matthew chapter 6 that we didn't, you know, really, we weren't really aware of that we had this trust issue with God that we didn't, you know, believe he would come through for sure. We might give lip service, but the moment of trial, friends, what is really in your heart will come out. It will really come out. Usually under trial, uh, the thing that you care about the most, the thing that is constantly on your mind is the thing God wants to deal with. For the brothers, it was this issue of suppressing acknowledgement of their guilt and their sin and not recognizing God uh, because of their sin. And for, for Jacob here, it's this favoritism that he's playing. We know, uh, you know, First, first Peter 1.6, it says, Now for a little while you have been distressed by various trials, so that the refining of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even th though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. This is why the Lord puts trials in our path. And friends, we ought to rejoice, as it says in James 1, when we face them. They are producing a clearer picture of God. They are causing us to turn to him when otherwise we probably would not. They do that just here as it culminates in verse 28. They say, God has done this. Friends, the trials are worth it because they let us appropriately recognize and see God in a greater way than otherwise we would not have, literally refined by his sovereign hand. The trials we've faced as a church, friends, were not random. They are not apart from the sovereign will of God. They were teaching us to recognize him, to fear him. When we were emotionally distraught, God was growing us. We must come to that place where we fear the Lord. And this is done as God allows trials in our lives, opportunities to recognize God. I pray whatever trial 
that you're facing this morning, that God brings you to that place where you begin to recognize him, that it is his doing for your good and for his glory, and that you are refined and see the Lord in a greater light. So God uses trials to cause us to turn our eyes upon him, to fear him and recognize him. He also uh, causes us to reap what we sow. God causes us to fear him and recognize him by making us reap that which we have sown. It's consequences. We also read about that, Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. There is a principle here of sowing and reaping. This is the fact that God has ordered the world in such a way where actions have results, where what is thrown up towards the sky must fall back down. This is, you know, practical. If you spend all day eating exclusively sweets, you gain weight and strain your heart. There's a result, right? If, if God's moral laws, this does not change just because it's spiritual or moral. If God's moral laws are broken, there are consequences. Sin always has consequences and bad results. Cause and effect, it's a real thing. Joseph's brothers did do wrong. And now they must face the music. They must experience, to some extent, Granted, God withheld the full extent, praise God, but they must experience the weight of the consequence in order to again recognize and fear the Lord in that appropriate way. One of the biggest lies our culture is believing right now is that there's no consequence for sin. The lie that's plaguing our nation so greatly right now that we can ignore God's moral laws and go about our merry way and have nothing happen. Friends, that is the lie of Satan. Sin has results. Now again, granted, the ultimate consequence for us has been paid by Jesus Christ. And this is great news because this means in the end, we spend eternity with Jesus forever glorified in his midst. And that is fantastic news. And that's fantastic news for you who, who doesn't know him and who hasn't received that gift. But if you have, be careful not to write off this message either in this point because this still applies to the believer. God can and still give us temporal consequences for our sin and take us to the divine woodshed, so to speak. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. And when we recognize, we start to say, oh, I don't see God the same, the same way. I don't fear him anymore. I have, no, no big deal. God will remind us and it should point us back to the cross if you're a believer. But that reminder will still be there, friends. There'll still be a consequence. There'll still be some weight there. So do not be so naive as to ignore this point. It is to, again, produce within us an appropriate view of who God is. Now, again, sometimes our actions are, are, are not bad and we still face a trial. That happens, right? It happened with Job. happened with the early church. They were persecuted even though they were doing the right thing. Uh, arguably, the famine, too, was just kind of this trial that maybe would have happened anyway. I don't know. Uh, but regardless, we tend to overestimate the frequency of this and ignore the fact that sometimes, and more often than we think, Bad behavior and sin does cause the consequence and the trial. It certainly did here. 
Sin affects things. There are consequences for us to consider, and there is a true judge of these things. The sovereign Lord allows consequences. So Joseph's brothers now arrive in Egypt and are about to experience some of these consequences. Now, mind you, uh, this happens in few ways. Uh, God placed Joseph in that position of authority in verse 6. We see them bow down to Joseph now, just like God had planned and had revealed to Joseph in chapter 37 and stated he would. Right? God's revelation is always coming to pass and is always purposeful. Is always purposeful. God knew the jealousy in their heart and how all this would play out. And now God has appointed Joseph in the position of authority. Verse 6, Joseph was the ruler of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed to him, bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. God set this up. This was his doing. The famine, right, was allowed by God. Joseph was sovereignly uh, placed where he was. This was all a part of the plan. And Joseph now is in, in the position of authority, and there's no... They're in no, the brothers are in no position to be arguing. They have to do this. There is no food. God has placed Joseph in charge and allowed him uh, to, to be in that position, to be an instrument of justice and chastisement for the brothers who are now dependent on Joseph. Now, for us, remember, Romans 13 here is, is interesting. God designed governments and authorities, it says, when functioning properly, to punish wrongdoing. And here... Who's, who has God placed in authority? By necessity, Joseph, right? It's, it's time for some of those consequences. Now, let's see how some of them play, play about. Verse 7, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. Here's what we see. We see that from here, God is using another imperfect being sinful words to chastise our, their own sin. That's quite interesting. Now, Joseph, he's by no means perfect here, right? Joseph is a positive figure, but not a perfect figure. There's only one who's perfect. Joseph was wrong to speak harshly to them. Yet, at the same time, one cannot deny that the reason Joseph, in his heart, willed himself to speak this way, to speak harshly, was related to their past sinful behavior. See, if there's no correlation in Joseph's reasoning, then his behavior is rather erratic. There's not really an explanation for it. It makes no sense. Joseph treated them this way because of their previous actions towards him. Now, that doesn't mean it's right, but friends, it was allowed. It was allowed for a wake-up call to help get attention. God did not directly cause the harsh and sinful actions of Joseph here, but certainly God used Joseph's positions and actions as a temporal consequence and as a reminder and as an act of chastisement to help instill the fear of the Lord in these brothers. Again, this is part of that process leading to verse 28. This is recognition that God is allowing and working these things. The brothers could not deny it in 28. And so, friends, we cannot deny it here that God is using imperfect people for chastisement. What do we do with that? We must conclude that God is using an imperfect Joseph to bring about chastisement. Even arguably sinful words of others 
can indeed be a part of God's chastisement of us. Let us not be too proud to think this can happen, that your sinful husband or sinful wife letting you have it, though that is wrong, independently of the issue, can chastise you. It may be a part of God's wake-up call for you. Again, no one except Christ is perfect, but does this mean no temporal consequences or reminders of God can be administered by imperfect people through the will of a sovereign God? No. That is naive to think that God cannot do this. Joseph's brothers, again, recognized this was God's doing. The man, after all, arresting someone for murder could himself be a thief. The parent reprimanding a child could have been sinfully angry at them. That is neither here nor there, for God sovereignly rules over each individual and deals with them accordingly. Our point is that God can and does use imperfect people and their harsh words to bring about temporal consequences to help us see and focus and fear him. Do not focus so much on the imperfections of others as much on what God is trying to show you. Church, we must be on the lookout for this chastisement because it's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? We don't, we don't tend to go there. When that boss, that secular boss even, or that elder, or that parent, or spouse, or government dishes out something to us, is our response, oh, well, you did this? Or are we taking advantage of the opportunity we recognize that even an imperfect being may be a part of God's correction of us? It could be God trying to disrupt our little perfect plan and cause us to see him more clearly. Again, tough pill to swallow here. But I believe there is something, something there for us to consider. And this goes even further than harsh speaking. Uh, God uses false accusations to chastise us for sin. Who here has been falsely accused of something? Yeah, like probably most of us, maybe big or small, has had someone tell a lie about us or accuse us of something. When that happens, is our response to, you know, defend ourselves and be all, like, oh, well, you've done this, I didn't do that, and get all fight? Or are we, you know, we can, we can defend ourselves with truth and logic and reason, and that's fine if we're kind and gentle, but could it be that maybe there's something deeper taking place here? Uh, look at this, right? So verse 8, it says, but Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And then Joseph remembered the dreams he had and said, you are spies. And this seems odd. This seems mysterious. God's using a false accusation of something they did not do to bring the brothers to a place where they recognize God and the sinful actions they did do. It appears that way. This was a part of it, was it not? It's in there. Not only does Joseph say this, he has his whole plan. His whole uh, you know, plan revolves around this false accusation. He adamantly emphasizes it multiple times, right? It says in verse 11, they're going back and forth. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Joseph said to them, it is as I have said to you, you are spies. But look at this, friends. When you Consider this. When you are falsely accused, it may be God trying to get your attention. It may be that the false accusation is meant to point to a true accusation. Mind you, the brothers, they were not spies. They had no intention of capturing the land or anything like that. But just because they were not spies 
Look at what's coming out of their heart through the trial. They were not honest, were they? Verse 11, what was the claim? That they were honest. We are honest men. Well, they just lied about what had happened. They just left out the crucial details that they sold their brother into slavery. They were lying, saying their brother had, had died to Jacob later on and right to Joseph's face all throughout the chapter. So yes, while it's true they were not spies and that was a false accusation, this revealed in them that they were not being honest either. God was still using the false accusation to get that guilt out of them, to get the truth out of them, to get what was really going on so he can operate on their hearts. And friends, that can happen to you when you're falsely accused. Pay attention. Pay attention. Joseph himself, in his word choice here, hones in on integrity, in fact. The integrity of their story. He wants to test their words. He said in verse 15, By this you will be tested, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, surely you are spies. And so they are given another consequence, this task to bring Benjamin by Joseph, because they continued in their sin. Joseph knew they were lying, Obviously, he was Joseph. Surely he knew himself that he was not dead. And so God allows Joseph here to give them another little test or trial, probably to help, again, hone in on integrity and bring these things out of them. And so we see an additional consequence, an additional trial due to a lack of integrity and repentance while in Egypt. While the broader famine, again, might not have been a result of their direct sin, certainly this trial from Joseph unarguably is a consequence of their continued unrepentant sin. I mean, Joseph tested them by telling them, go home, go to Benjamin and, Benjamin and, and bring him. Now, mind you, this is a journey, right? This, they're traveling, this physical travel and time. It's certainly emotionally painful trial that they have caused upon themselves through their lack of integrity. There's strain, right? Reuben offers to put his own children to death. Jacob is completely shaken, right? There is drama and shame, and all of these things were caused, again, by continued unrepentance, by not acknowledging that thing that God wanted to acknowledge. And friends, when we do not do that, when we ignore God, guess what happens? Another consequence. You think that we're going to be able to continue and endure consequence after consequence? He's breaking us. And he's doing that with Joseph's brothers here. He's testing them. He's trying to get to the core of the issue. Now, again, I can't say for sure 100%, but I wonder if they had come clean with Joseph, if Joseph would have right there and then withheld this test of integrity and moved on to what we see later on in the story more quickly. Uh, this is, I mean, God gives us consequences for our unrepented sin. This is a tentative, fine example of this. Friends, not always, but sometimes our problems are quite self-induced. When your marriage is shaky, when you're emotionally stressed all the time, if you can't catch a break, it could be, you know, the, re the refining trial not from sin, but it could be that you need to go to that place of repentance, that you refuse to go in and repent. Otherwise, friends, there's another consequence. God, God's love not giving up on us sometimes looks a lot different than we think, doesn't it? 
<clears throat> Furthermore, we see how serious this all is. Just look at the seriousness that's this, that, that is taking place here. God uses serious consequences to chastise us. Verse uh, 42, he put them all in prison together for three days. This only further proved the seriousness of what was happening. Sin, again, is serious. Joseph had consequences for them. And, and friends, they didn't know how the story was going to end. Put yourself back in the time machine in your mind for a second. Put yourself in their shoes. You're in a foreign land. You have an angry ruler, and you're sent to jail. Okay, they don't know how this is going to end. For them, this imprisonment, though maybe a slight narrative detail that we read really quickly, probably struck immense fear in their hearts. This, I mean, this could have been the end of their way of life. It may all have been over for them. This was a serious consequence, a serious wake-up call for them. And God allowed Joseph really to shake up their lives in a way that they were probably not expecting when they entered Egypt. It was disheartening, it was scary. It showed the seriousness of the matter. And furthermore, after their release, we see Simeon was held in Egypt while they returned to Jacob. Verse 24, he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. Simeon, the second oldest brother, was held there. Uh, Now, it very well could be that Simeon was held there because Joseph, in verse 22, overheard that Reuben, the oldest brother, stood up for Joseph. Therefore, the second oldest would be Simeon. He would be the next kind of in line to take on responsibility of doing the right thing. He should have followed Reuben's lead, but he did not. So this could very well be the reason Simeon is taken here. It very well could be God's divine justice taking into account all the calculations that were honestly just a little too, maybe a little too stupid to know, right? For lack of better words, um, him taking into account all of these details and bringing about just what everyone needs. The perfect justice could very well be that here. Uh, Regardless, this is a serious consequence. You know, we, who knows what Joseph will do here from their perspective. Again, they don't have the end of the story. I mean, one minute he's throwing them in jail, the next minute he's like blessing them. Uh, Sometimes he's, you know, going away, sending everyone away and weeping. He seems pretty crazy from their perspective. And now he's taken Simeon and he has bound them before their eyes. They're probably very afraid and confused. For all they knew, this could be the last time they ever saw Simeon. Again, another interesting note is that this was done visually before their eyes, it says in the scriptures. It's, it's like taking your, a family member, someone who you, who you love. They weren't, you know, they were jealous. They didn't like Joseph, but they liked Simeon. And taking that family member and then binding them right before you, saying, all right, all the siblings come out, watch, have something to show you. There's a public shaming here, something public about it. There's, uh, it's, it's like a child being told, stand in the corner, right? It's, it's particularly shaming, but God is just. This serves perhaps as justice being served to Simeon for the responsibility that he did not take, or perhaps not, but nonetheless, God, again, is omniscient and can calculate all of those fine details, can't he? And God allowed this serious consequence for a reason to bring justice and to strike fear and recognition of God in the hearts of these brothers. Serious consequences tend to do that, don't they? 
That's why we use them on our children sometimes, don't we? We want to get recognized as the authority that we are. And so there's this consequence. And in a moment, um, well, when I think of this, I think of a story recently, actually. This is a story I read online of a pastor, right, who committed adultery with uh, a young girl and actually groomed her. Um, and he sort of repented of this, I was reading, and said, you know, said that this was a wrong thing to do. And it was quite devastating. Now, is, is this pastor going to hell? I, I can't make that judgment. If he's repented of his sins and he trusts in Jesus, no, he's not. However, there was some real damage done. There were some real consequences done there. He lost his job. He had to work things out with his, his, his wife and his family. The people that he hurt. This is the, the congregation, the church, and he's publicly shamed. There's real consequences that God will give us to restore us to a place where we fear him. And this is what is happening with Joseph, his brothers, and friends. Let us not be so naive to think that this cannot happen with us as well. Chastisement, even for the saved believer, is not fun. This is chaotic. This is fearful. This is crazy for them. There will be consequences. We will reap what we sow. Lastly, and most importantly, God causes us to fear him by reminders of our sin and guilt. The brothers tried to suppress this, tried to not deal with this, tried to push down their guilt and their sin, but everything in this story is constantly bringing it up. God brings about all of, all of these events knowing that it is going to cause the brothers to feel guilty. Look at what happens, verse 21. It comes out verbally. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when we pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. There is a sense in which in our day, in our culture, guilty feelings are shunned. And yes, friends, there is unwarranted guilt and inappropriate guilt. And that is a message for another time. But friends, sometimes there is a guilt that is real. There is a guilt that is to be felt, that needs to be repented of, that needs forgiveness. Guilt, when functioning appropriately, is a good thing. It is a grace. Imagine if they never repented and went about their lives. Again, what a travesty. Do not believe the lie that God never wants you to feel a sorrow or a guilt. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, the, the sorrow that is according to the will of God. That is what we're reading about. It produces what? Repentance. This is the backdrop, friends. The context of, of that, by the way, in Corinthians seems to be a letter written by Paul that was addressing bad behavior, addressing something they should have felt bad about. And so here the brothers are trying to avoid these bad feelings as we humans tend to do. We're trying to push it down, but friends, you cannot run from it, especially if it is according to the will of God as it is here and as it is in our lives. God is sovereignly allowing it. I mean, think of this, the constant reminders. Let's just go through a few things. First, God 
uses the place to remind them of their sin. We talked about that a little bit already. They're told to go where? To Egypt. I'm sure just the name of that place caused something in them to stir a little bit. They got a little uncomfortable, right? That guilt is starting to come out. That's why they all look at each other. What what else is the explanation for that, not responding and looking at each other? They're feeling a little bad. They don't want to go there. We talked about that already. Second, he used ironic circumstances to remind them of their sin, right? Look at what's happening. Jacob has a new favorite, and guess what? Joseph wants that favorite in Egypt. They're just like little things. I don't know if this was on their mind for sure, but it's certainly ironic, isn't it? The new favorite has to go to Egypt. I'm sure that might, might have struck a little bit of guilt over what had happened in their hearts. We see thirdly, out of their own mouths, they are reminded of their sin. We talked about this already. They are continuing their narrative. No one is, uh, Joseph, he's no longer alive, no longer alive. They're telling it again to Joseph's face, to his brothers. Certainly, every time that came out of their mouth, something was going on in their hearts. Certainly, that, that, that was trying to come out, that guilt. This is interesting. Their father himself, his grief reminds them and points to it. Imagine your own father looking at you and saying, you have reprieved me. You've deprived me of my sons. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. And now you take Benjamin. These things are against me. Their father telling them that. Imagine hearing that. They probably felt so, like to to not acknowledge it would just be inhuman. Now, Jacob doesn't know the whole story here, but the fact that he's wording it this way and and almost putting a measure of responsibility on the brothers for these things. Oh, the guilt was probably creeping out, wasn't it? Here's something also. Joseph, who they see as the Egyptian leader, mentions that he fears God. Imagine that you're sitting there. Oh, he's just an Egyptian. He's got all these gods. God's going to deal with him. And then Joseph says, oh no, these things, I fear God. I fear the God. There's a, an article there in the original language. It doesn't mean Egyptian gods or, or anything like that. It means God. That's how it would have been understood by Joseph's brothers. This would have been extremely frightening. It would have made them think of Yahweh. They would have been thinking about God. Joseph, on the other hand, though he's a positive figure, you know, he's an example here. He is living the kind of life that, uh, that, that God had for him. Joseph, you know, he, he very well might have wanted revenge or been emotionally, you know, imprisoned them. He's going back and forth. He's weeping, sending people away. But in the end, he says, we have to do things God's way. You may live and go. Why? For I fear the Lord. You see, that fear of the Lord is resulting in obedience in Joseph's life, as it should with ours. We must uh, recognize him. Uh, but nonetheless, this, this mentioning probably gets them, again, to address the, these issues of who God is and their sin within them. And lastly, we see that God uh, even uses misunderstood grace to remind them of their sin. One brother says, my money has been returned. Their response, right, this money. So usually a good thing. Raise your hand if you use money and you like money and it's pretty good. Yeah, right? It's, it's, you've, it's not, not a bad thing. It is a good thing when God blesses us with money in an appropriate way. Right? But here, 
they get this money back, and instead of even thinking, oh, thank you, God, they're so overwhelmed with guilt at this point that their hearts sank, and they turned, and they're trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? They are afraid. They are confused. They are on edge. They are overwhelmed with guilt and these feelings of constant, imminent judgment. And they feel this way because they have done wrong and they have not truly dealt with it. And so they're on edge. Even good things are reminding them that God, that, that, that there's a sin, they're awaiting it. They're, I mean, think about this, confusing. They're accused of being spies and they're sent on their way and then they find all their money again. This was, again, confusion for them. And instead of feeling good, they, they think, you know, it, God, literally Joseph fears God. They attribute it all to God. And anyone who's been guilty knows what this is like, just to have that constant dread over you. It's like constantly waiting for judgment. They can't run anymore. They can't hide anymore. All of these things have kind of led to this point. The Lord, through these events, has forced them to a place where they feel guilty. And this guilt is on them personally. And moreover, they know God is just. And they know that, that there's consequences. And they've seen God's sovereignty all over this. And they attribute it to him. And it causes them to tremble. Friends, here's, here's the point. Again, God brings them to that place. God wanted them to feel that guilt. Why? Because guilt reminds us that there is a sovereign God who is just, who is the arbiter of justice in light of what we have done. There is indeed an authority that judges sin, and God wants us to know that. This is who he is, and it cannot be ignored. Satan right now is doing everything in his power to make people feel as little guilt as possible to downplay sin and its effects. And I don't mean, you know, it's, it's not right to feel guilty after repentance, by the way. There is that false guilt. We shouldn't repent and then, you know, feel guilt. That's almost downplaying the cross now, isn't it? But the problem in our culture, and for so many, is they are doing everything in their power to avoid guilt. And friends, when we do that, we might go through a crazy story like Joseph's brothers. When you avoid guilt, too, by the way, you avoid grace. There is a tact. That is the tactic Satan is using. God sovereignly brings us to that place of guilt, not to, you know, where we, where we feel terrified, not to smite us, but to offer us forgiveness. To deal with it, for real. He is good by allowing these things to happen. He is good by allowing us to recognize these things. Friends, there is a real guilt, a real shame, something that ought to be felt and dealt with in our hearts. And Joseph's brothers, they did do wrong. They should have felt guilty. They sold their brother into slavery. Did they not? They did. And to not feel guilt, friends, is simply deluded. They did seriously and unjustly abuse their brother. And if they never felt that guilt, they never would have been reconciled to their brother or to God appropriately. This is the backdrop for 
grace and repentance and reconciliation, and it must be understood. Guilt can be a grace that causes us to see ourselves more clearly and to recognize God more clearly that he is the judge that all men will be judged by him. And what I'm saying is not popular, but it's biblical and it's part of the gospel that there is a weight associated with what we have done. Sounds discouraging, it sounds bad, but friends, there is a reason that Jonathan Edwards' most famous and most impactful sermon, arguably, is entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. While it sounds, again, discouraging, it sets the stage for the true repentance, for the true forgiveness, for the true reconciliation to take place. And again, those who delude themselves that they don't need to fear God, they deprive themselves of reconciliation, and one day they will fear God. But this is the backdrop We'll either do it now or we'll do it then. This is the backdrop for grace. We must fear God, not in a cutesy way where fear is, oh, it just means awe. Like, wow, God, nice, God's like a fireworks show. That's pretty cool. But literally, in a way, we are understanding that he is sovereign, he is just, and we are guilty. That is the spot God wants to bring us to. For the unrepentant sinner who doesn't know him. He wants that person to feel the weight of their sin and to set the stage for grace in your life, to deal with it, to, have, to allow true forgiveness. You know, he is a judge, but he is a loving judge. There's recon reconciliation and grace available to you, friend. We'll see this play out beautifully later in the story of Joseph, but ultimately it's played out wonderfully at the cross. That is where it is truly played out. Friends, we know that Christ, that guilt that we are trying to avoid, that we keep pushing down, that Christ has dealt with it. We know that the judgment that we're fearing over us, that, that's awaiting us, that, that ultimate judgment, that it has been dealt with. That the sovereign Father who powerfully controls all things, who we should be afraid of, who hates sin, poured out his wrath, not on us, but on Christ. Therefore, this is not a bad thing. Recognize the guilt. Embrace the fear of the Lord. And then, friend, embrace Christ's forgiveness over you. For the sinner, these things are so, so important. Don't run from it. Pray it out. Talk to God. And for the saint, let every moment of that divine woodshed experience that we have during sanctification remind us of Christ's grace and, and push us to recognize the weightiness of these things. Let's um, just review. He causes us to recognize him and fear him by trials. He causes us to fear him by making us reap what we've sown, and he causes us to fear him by reminding us of our sin and guilt. Um, let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this difficult truth. Um, and Lord, um, we thank you that you give us what we need, um, that you bring us to those places of repentance, that you allow these things to happen. And Lord, though they're not fun, though, I personally, uh, 
even struggled as I was preaching, saying some of this, Lord. We thank you that you love us and that in Christ Jesus there is forgiveness of these things and that we can live forever with you in eternity. Lord, bring clarity. If there's anything I've spoken that's been unclear, Holy Spirit, bring clarity to it and glorify yourself, I pray. Bless us as we go and allow us to apply these things to our lives. In Christ's name, amen.